a bit of a mess this morning, sorry. I even had to go back and get tissues. Um, Because if I'm not tearing up, I'm nursing a NyQuil hangover right now. (laughs) So you got that going for me. (laughs) A little bit of a cold. Um, So... I, I'm not responsible for anything I say this morning, all right? Just like, let's get that clear. If I say something weird that makes no sense, there's probably good reason. Um, but I am, I'm really excited about where we are at as a community. I'm really excited about what God has been doing in our midst and what I believe and pray and hope he'll continue to do among us, uh, collectively uh, as well as uh, individually. And uh, this morning, I'm excited about uh, getting into our text because I really believe that um, my hope, really, my intent for this morning is that this, this talk would in some ways prepare us for Thanksgiving season, right? We're entering that time of year where uh, we're more mindful, perhaps, of the idea of Thanksgiving, more mindful of the idea of uh, being a person of gratitude, of acknowledging all that we have to be thankful for. And, um, and I, I believe that as a community and as individuals within this community, we have so much to be thankful for, so much that we can praise God for. And, um, so, and even next week, next week, just to kind of give you a heads up of where we're heading, next week the entire service uh, will just be a spirit of thanksgiving, an opportunity for us to worship, an opportunity for us to, to declare praise, to, to communicate the ways in which uh, God is moving among us. Uh, we'll hear stories of that. Uh, stories that have been miracles, kind of of the past, that are still ongoing. Um, and so I would even encourage you, come prepared to share with someone. Uh, maybe it's someone next to you. Maybe it's, uh, it w- we'll group up. Maybe it'll be a time for you just to openly stand and declare ways in which uh, God has blessed you. But uh, as we enter that season, my hope, my intent for this morning is to kind of prepare us for that. Uh, let me ask you this question. Have you ever had one of those moments in life where someone said something to you that you really, really needed to hear? It was as if they, uh, they grabbed your attention and spoke a word, a word of truth, something you needed to hear, and it just like cut you. I, I shared not too long ago, it was probably this summer or late spring, uh, a little story of me when I was about six years old. I uh, went to the fair with my parents. It was uh, an awesome experience. Came home, and I had won a prize. I had this big stuffed animal. I was so excited about it, and I also had won two Coke bottles. And so I I, I told you I got out of my car. We lived uh, on a college campus at this time. My father was a professor for 40-plus years and um, we, we get out of the car, and my parents said, hey, we should carry that for you up the big steps. And I said, no way. These are mine, and I want to hold on to them. And so I made my way up all the steps to the top one, and I tripped and fell. And the glass bottles hit the ground. They didn't do the whole plastic thing back then. It was cool to have glass Coke bottles. And so I, I dropped both of those. And then landed on top of the glass and the soda. And uh, the, the thing that I wanted so bad was to protect my stuffed animal, right? And so I'm doing everything I can to like try to get the stuffed animal out of the water. Like I got to, you know, out of the, the soda, I want to protect it. And um, my parents are like, get up, get up. Like 
trying to like get me out of the state I was in. And finally, my dad, who you remember, he, he just grabbed me, picked me up, set me down. At this point, I'm, I'm just bleeding. He, sit, he stood me there, and he's like, like shook me almost. And he's like, let me have your attention. Stop. Stop. Let it go. It's fine. We'll get it. We'll get it. Don't worry. But you're like making things worse, right? And it was this moment where he, he like shook me and said, pay attention to this, right? Have you had one of those moments where someone comes and says something that you so desperately need to hear? Like the, it, that it just, it, it wakes you from where you've been. It's, it's as if somebody hit like the reboot button and the whole program like refreshes, the screen is new again, and like you see things clearly. Before that, you were kind of out of sorts. Before that, you were spun out over something or, or you were so intensely fixated on an issue that, that you couldn't get past it. And then finally, someone says something to you that just that clears everything. I don't know if you've had a moment like that, but I feel like Jesus had one of those moments with Peter. He probably had many of those moments with Peter, but one of them we're going to look at this morning where he just like says this phrase that I think just rattled Peter in a way that changed his perspective probably from that point forward. And my hope this morning is that uh, that will be a same word for us. That what God is saying to Peter is the very thing that we, we need to hear. If you have your Bible, you could turn to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. It's uh, the very end of this particular gospel. As you know, we're looking at the life of Jesus during this year. And um, John 21 is, is a really unique little section or a little chapter of Scripture because I actually think that John 21 is an addendum. It was added later. What I mean by that is John finished chapter 20 and what I consider to be the conclusion of the book, at least the first time, with these words. It'll be on the screen as well. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. You see, Many times throughout the Gospels and throughout other New Testament letters that there's like this conclusion statement, right? And John says that I write everything that I wrote in these 20 chapters to say to you this, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you might have life through His name. And he kind of wraps up everything. And then I just kind of picture or imagine him at another point before he sends off the letter, or before the letter begins to be circulated, that he's like, oh man, i got to include this other story. Like, it, it's got to make it into the book, so I'm going to add it. And so he does. He adds this, I, I believe, at a later time. A lot of scholars believe it was added uh, at a later time as well. Um, and, and he goes on to tell what many of us would say is one of the more profound stories related to God's redemption in the life of a person. Right, And it goes on to say this in chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, 
I am going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now this is classic disciples, right? Uh, it's classic in a couple ways. Uh, Jesus had died. He uh, it, it, like isn't on the scene anymore. They, they saw him maybe once at the, the tomb or near the tomb. They heard stories of that. They may have seen him one other time. Um, and then he really is, besides those two sightings, he's not been present. He's not been around. And uh, I, many people speculate at that point, the disciples were like, well, I guess that's it. I guess that's the whole story, right? Didn't know what to do, had no idea what to do, and so they went back to their day job. My father was a fisherman, his father was a fisherman, and Peter goes, hey, I'm, I'm going to go, go back to fishing. I'm back at it. And then other classic disciple thing, he caught nothing, right? And so it's not even going well, Right? And so, right after that, it says, just as day was breaking. So they've been fishing through the night with no, no avail. Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now, this would have been a pretty familiar scene to them, right? There was another time it happened just like this. We're fishing. Nothing's happening. Hey, why don't you cast it on the other side? It makes no sense to cast it on the other side. That's not where the fish are. They do it anyway, and then they have more than they could possibly pull in, right? So this would have been like, wait a second flashback, right? This moment like, this has happened before, this makes sense. And then uh, John, doing the classic refer to himself in the third person, and in a humble way at that. Um, (laughs) You know, I'm the one that Jesus really loves. Um, He then (laughs) says to Peter, hey, Peter, it's it's the Lord, it's Jesus. Like, can you believe it? It's, It's him. And then it says this, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord... He put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. So Peter, this probably would have been another flashback moment, right? Peter goes, I'm in a boat. I'm on water. Makes complete sense to jump over and start walking, right? And like he did with Jesus when the storm was on the sea and Jesus says, come, and Peter goes, I'll do it, and he gets out. This time he knows it's Jesus, jumps in, and runs and swims to shore to meet him. The rest of the disciples kind of make their way over in time. And it says that when he got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. I love how fishermen always count, right? So they had to make sure that you knew how many they had. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. 
Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And this is an amazing scene, right? I mean, you can, you can picture it. The boat's been brought to shore. They're having breakfast. All throughout the scriptures, or at least the gospels, you see this importance in meals, right? That there's something significant about dining with others. About having a meal, about sharing together, about being hospitable with one another. And so Jesus is in that moment with them. There's bread and fish which probably would have reminded them that Jesus fed 5,000 plus women and children with a few loaves and some fish. It would have reminded them that he's the bread of life. It would have reminded him that he's the provider of everything. And so there's like this, all this background information kind of rolling through the scene. They have these memories. They have this intimacy There was probably a time while they're having breakfast that he then takes the bread, right, and breaks it. And it flashes back to the Last Supper where he broke the bread and said, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me, right? And so all these memories, all this like intimacy, all this relationship, all this history is taking place. It it reminds me of those those times in life where you feel like you're in the perfect moment, I've had those before when I've gone hiking or I've been in the wilderness and, and you're like, oh, you're sitting next to this fire, it's early in the morning, you have oatmeal in your cup, you're sitting with friends, there's fog over the lake and you just go, man, how can it get much better than this, right? You're there in one of those moments and everything just seems to be perfect and you're with all of the people that you've been on mission with for three years. You're with all the people that you've, you've shared so much of life with. And then Jesus <clears throat> has all this moment with the disciples. And then he takes like this special moment and he has it with Peter. It's a, really a sacred moment, right? It's all about Peter being restored. It's all about him being reminded that he uh, is being brought back into wholeness. That, that he has a mission. That he's being required something of him, right? And so you see here in verse, I think, 15, you look a little further, it says this, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said it to him a third time. Third time he asked him, do you love me? Right? And, and he's got to be feeling in this moment of grief, the, the, this reminder that three times he was asked, do you know Jesus, right? And three times he said, I don't know him. I deny him. I, like, I have nothing to do with that man. You know, I will curse his name if, if that's what it takes for you to understand that I, I have nothing to do with this man, right? And he has to be thinking in the symmetry of this, right? Like, oh man, he asked me a third time. He's not just asking me. He's like getting after something deep within me, right? Do you love me? 
And he said to him, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you. And carry you where you did not want to go. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me, right? So Peter's having this like sacred moment with God, right? This moment where he's being restored, this moment where life is being breathed back into him, where he's being told, like, you, you have a mission to feed sheep, right? You have a calling. You're important. He restores him. He says, like, you're mine, right? Like, and then he says, follow me. He, he, he asks him the same question that he asked him at the very beginning when he first met him, when he says, will you follow me? And Peter says, I'll leave everything to follow you, right? And then now come full circle back to that moment, and he asks him again, will you follow me? And uh, I can imagine, right, like the amount of relief that you would feel in that moment. Like after you felt heartache and after you felt hurt by being asked the question again, but then being invited to follow and being told that, you, like, like, I love you, right? Like there's that moment of excitement, there's relief, there's like all this emotion washing over you all at the same time. But then in that very moment, Peter does what I think so many of us do. He gets sidetracked. He gets distracted. He's in the most beautiful moment, and all of a sudden, he snaps out of it. And here's what the text says Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is that that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, so Peter looks back, he's walking with Jesus. They're up a little ahead of the rest of the disciples. They're having this sacred moment. He turns around. He sees the disciple whom Jesus loved. He sees John. And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? What about him? What will his mission be? What about his life? What about his death? I mean, how many of you find yourself in that same moment, right? What about him? What about her? When you enter into this place where you begin to compare, you compare your life, your story, your situation to those around you. The other day I had a conversation with this young woman, and um, she was telling me something she felt like God was calling her to, and uh, she said she felt really inadequate, incapable of doing it, couldn't, couldn't rise up to meet the challenge. And I said to her in um, deep sarcasm that she didn't catch, unfortunately, 
it's too bad that there's no passages in the scripture that ever point out characters that also felt inadequate to accomplish what God had called them to. And she looked at me like, wait a second. And I was like, no, really? I mean, it's all over the Bible, right? It, it Constantly, like every story is that. Well, I, I think this issue of comparing is laced throughout the scriptures as well because I think comparing is a human condition. We, for some reason, long to compare ourselves to those around us. You have Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve compared the life that they had, the perfect life in the garden, with the imagined life that they could have that was offered to them. They compared. You have Cain and Abel. They compared their sacrifice to the Lord, right? They compared essentially, am I more religious than my brother? Am I more favored by God than the person next to me? Leah and Rachel, they compared their beauty. They compared whether or not they would be able to uh, be married and win the affection of someone else or whether they would be single their whole life, right? They compared Saul and David. I mean, before even Saul and David, Israel compared themselves to all their nations. God, give us a king. Every other nation has a king. We want a king. He's like, you have me. Yeah, great, we want a king, right? And so he's like, all right, here's a king. And then you have Saul and you have David. And Saul constantly compared himself to David. His accomplishments, what he was able to do, how many people he, he was victorious over. His achievements. You see it in the New Testament. You see the Pharisee who's praying and compares himself with the sinner. The sinner's weeping on the ground. The Pharisee's raising his hands and praying and says, like, God, I'm so thankful that you didn't make me like him. Right? Constant comparison. Even in the midst of worship. Even in the midst of prayer. Then you have the disciples. And they're constantly... Who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? Who gets to sit on his right hand and who gets to sit on his left? Always. I mean, it's not like we're the first. I mean, maybe it's not your issue. I'll just say it's mine. But there is this spirit of comparing all throughout the scriptures. And you see Peter in this moment, a sacred moment, who snaps out of that moment and instantly goes to comparison. What about him? What are you going to do with him? What's his lot in life? What's it look like for him? I mean, students, it's probably the question that we ask when it feels like schoolwork is so hard for you, but someone else just like breezes through it. You know? They're like, they don't even know what, where the library is. You know? And you're in there for like four hours, and then you, the scores are posted, and it's the same. You're like, what? You know, or or you're working your way through school. You got a couple jobs, you're trying to pay it off. And I mean, they got the scholarship you applied for. Or their parents are paying their way. And you're like, this just doesn't seem fair. Doesn't seem fair. They always seem to get picked for the leadership positions you also wanted. 
It seems like things just come so easy for them, right? They, everything falls into place. They actually know what they want to do when they graduate. And the rest of us are clueless, right? You find yourself like constantly comparing. I mean, ladies, this, this happens quite a bit, right? Some of you with kids, you're comparing your kids. I mean, that kid's like crazy gifted. That kid can't even spell, you know? They're, they seem to be dressed really well, like they're all put together. My kid's slobbering over here. He's got stuff all over their shirt, you know? I get him in one new outfit, and I turn right around. I got to get him in another one. It's like, what is going on, you know? And even if they do look good, they're not well-behaved, or it feels like that, right? I, I take them to the moment that I'm like, oh, they, I mean, they're going to be so good here. And it's like, they're screaming in the grocery store. People are like, do you even know what you're doing? You know, like, you have those moments, right? And then you get invited over to your friend's house, and you walk in the door, and what do you do? You instantly compare, right? Like, oh, wow, they, they actually decorate well. Your house is clean. Mine doesn't feel clean. Never feels clean. Picking up after my kids and my husband, right? It's like, you know, or their house is so big or it has such this or it's that or whatever, you know? Like, and then there's appearance. The way you dress, you know, they, their hair is always amazing. Mine's like a rat's nest, right? It's like, or their hair's curly and I really wanted curly hair too. Or they seem to like always know the latest trend. They seem to be in style. I feel frumpy. I don't have what like I need to wear. They eat whatever they want. I look at candy and gain weight. I mean, it's like, <laughs> I'm just saying things I've heard, you know? <laughs> Maybe it's about relationships, right? You're single. You're like, yay, bridesmaid again. Like, awesome. I love, love it. I love it. Guys, we can't let ourselves off the hook here, right? We compare how much time we work compared to how much someone else's work. How much do they accomplish in their job versus how much I can accomplish in mine? what they get paid versus what you get paid. The status of their job. Oh, that's, you're going to graduate with that. Or, oh, that's what you do. You compare your gear, your gadgets, your stuff to everybody else's. Maybe it's your car. Maybe it's your house. Maybe it's your toys. Whatever it is, right? Like you compare. And you go, man, I, I wish I had that. A lot of people compare gifts or abilities, right? And they just seem so talented. They, they, they seem to lead people with ease. Or, man, they're just so gifted in that particular area. Or they, they, they know everybody. They're connected to all the right leaders. And whatever they need at a moment, they can ask and, and they get it. Or it seems like they can juggle 15 things at once. And I can juggle like two and I drop them, Right? And that just seems crazy. Or, or we 
compare freedom. Like they have this job and they get paid a lot, but then they like all this time off and they can set their own schedule. And they can be where they want, when they want. And they go on these excursions and their life just seems amazing, right? And Jesus says something to Peter in this moment. And maybe he says the same thing to us. Jesus says this to him. What is it to you? You follow me. Maybe that's what he says to us today. What is it to you? Why are you comparing? Why? What is it to you that they had a miracle happen in their life and I blessed them in that way and you seem to be in the midst of pain? What is that to you? What is that to you that I gave them and talents and abilities that I wanted to be used for my kingdom. And I also gave you talents and abilities. And maybe you don't feel like the ones you have are quite what you should have had. And what is that to you? Because what happens when we begin to compare is that we kill gratitude. It is impossible for us to enter a season of thanksgiving and gratitude and be people who compare. To compare means to kill gratitude. It's gone. It's done with. Right? And it happens in several ways. But what it does is it, it like eats away at the very fabric of our lives. When we compare, when we begin to envy, when we begin to covet, when we begin to long for things that we do not have, it eats away at the very fabric of our lives. Socrates said it this way, envy is the daughter of pride, the author of murder and revenge, and the perpetual tormentor of virtue. Envy is the filthy slime of the soul, a venom, a poison, which consumes the flesh and dries up the marrow of the bones. Envy is an ulcer of the soul. I mean, it's pretty light with it. <laughs> right? I mean, here's, here's what it does. When we compare, when we covet, when we long, like we are immediately dissatisfied with our own situation. You realize that, right? There's never a time that you can compare that you're like instantly satisfied but instead you're immediately dissatisfied. Immediately. That what you have isn't good enough. That who you are isn't good enough. That somehow you feel like you got the short end of the stick. That somehow you came up a little bit short when God was handing out the gifts, when God was supplying the needs, and, uh, and it leaves you on the short, right? It leaves you discontent. With the situation, you begin to hate your circumstances, you begin to question your station in life, you become, you feel like you're cheated, you feel like you've been let down, you feel like you've been disgruntled and irritated and disappointed and all of these things build up to the place where you are so dissatisfied that you begin to desire what others have. You begin to do what the scriptures call coveting, right? And coveting is one of those Ten Commandments it's a little bit unique among all the other commandments because commandments 1 through 9 are all external, right? You can see them. If you dishonor your parents, it can be seen. If you're committing adultery, it can be seen. If you're stealing something, it can be seen. 
All of those, all those things. If you're worshiping other gods, it can be seen, right? But coveting, the tenth, is really the only commandment in its original listing that is an internal commandment. Something that you could be doing at this very moment and no one around you knows. No one around you sees. And yet what it does is it creates a hole in the midst of your joy, in the midst of your life. It creates an emptiness that you feel, that affects you and affects those around you. I mean, it leads to all kinds of issues. You, you might question these, but um, I'll throw it out and maybe you can discuss it in small group. But I think the debt problem that we have as a nation, the debt problem that we have as individuals is not like a debt problem, it's a coveting problem. We want something we don't have the money for. And so we get it anyway. Right? The porn problem we have might not just be a desire problem. It might be a coveting problem. The low self-esteem problem. The insecurity problem. Coveting problems. Right? I mean, this is having dramatic effect on our life, because when we compare, we always walk away dissatisfied. In fact, here's part of why that happens. We typically compare the worst we know of ourselves to the best we presume about others. Right? We typically compare the worst we know of ourselves on our worst day, the thing we know about ourselves really that nobody else knows, the, the insecurity deep within, the thing that like we're wrestling with, on a regular basis, and we compare that to the best we presume about others, to the best that they let us know about, that which they post on Facebook or Instagram, that which they tell others about, and so we, we take the worst of who we think we are, and we compare it to the best of who we assume they are, and it always leaves us feeling empty. Let me tell you this, you're your gifts and talents, the ways that you've been blessed by God, the contributions that you have to make in this world, the things that God has specifically called you to, right? You can never properly be compared to anyone else. Ever. And yet you let yourself, and I let myself, be compared all the time. I mean, we have some of the most amazingly gifted and incredibly talented and beautiful and strong and unique people in this room. We do. Don't compare yourself to others. Live into the, who God made you to be. Live into how he's blessed you, how he's gifted you, how he's resourced you. And use that. But don't compare. The second thing is it causes you to begin to doubt God's goodness. I mean, I really don't need to probably talk about this one very much, right? It's pretty obvious. Because it can't be my fault that I'm in the situation I'm in, so it has to be somebody's, and usually that's someone's God. Right? The Israelites, immediately after they're out of Egypt, I mean, they were slaves in Egypt. And then they're free and then they're like, man, this manna sucks. 
we should go back and eat all the meat we were eating on, in stews while we sat around and did nothing. What are you talking about? They're, you're imagining things that don't exist, and you're beginning to question the very goodness of God, that he's providing everything you need, and we, we doubt his provision, we doubt his goodness, we question his faithfulness, and so we don't have to spend long here, but you get the idea that, that when we compare, when we become dissatisfied with the situation we're in, we instantly also begin to doubt his very goodness. And so the question becomes, so what? How do, what do we do? as we enter into this Thanksgiving season, as we spend a whole week um, next week looking at praising God. And a, a quote by Samuel Storms comes to mind. It says this, I am persuaded that all of our problems are conceived and born in the sinful belief that something or someone other than Jesus Christ can quench the thirst of our soul. And the truth of the matter is, we, in some way or another, are trying to find satisfaction wholeness, completeness, uh, a sense of purpose, a sense of um, importance, whatever, whatever words you want to use, we're trying to find that in someone other than Christ. We're trying to find it in our friends, in our stuff, people around us, in our status, and you name it, right? And we worry about our inadequacies. And here's the thing that's so true if we find our wholeness in Christ, Right? That we will always be inadequate, but our inadequacy is not an issue with him, right? That he's the one that has given us new life. He's the one that's given us wholeness. And so my, my challenge to you this morning is this, that maybe um, Jesus is kind of doing what my dad did to me where he grabbed me, shook me a little bit, and he's like, like knock it off. Stop comparing be who God has called you to be. Maybe he would say to you, what is it to you? You follow me. Let me pray, and what I want to pray is a prayer of St. Teresa of Avila over us as a community, as a benediction. So, uh, why don't you stand for this? We'll stand together. It'll be on the screen, but I'll just read it as a, as a prayer uh, for us as a community. Um, May today there be peace within. May you trust God that you are exactly where, and I'll add who, you were meant to be. May you not forget the infinite possibilities that are born of faith. May you use those gifts that you have received and pass on the love that has been given to you. May you be content knowing that you are a child of God. Let this presence settle into your bones And allow your soul the freedom to sing, dance, praise, and love. That is my prayer for us, new community. You are dismissed.